that these kids can hear the gospel, learn it, and believe it. We praise you, we love you, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, you are dismissed. <laughs> Um, our catechism question, uh, if you're new, uh, most Baptist churches don't do catechism questions, but uh, it's a way for us during the service to just uh, continue to learn uh, God's word, learn doctrine and, and theology. Um, and so this is uh, question 68, so we've been doing this for a while now. Uh, what are the reasons attached to the fourth commandment? And you would read the answer with me. The reasons attached to the fourth commandment are God's creating the world in six days and resting on the seventh and it's a blessing of the Sabbath day. In our passage, we're in the book of Luke, and uh, Luke chapter 11, and we're going to continue uh, Jesus' teachings here um, and he, that I talked about last week. So Luke chapter 11. Before I read this, uh, take a take a moment. I don't usually do this, but I figured it was appropriate, and especially since uh, we have a few people that have reminded me about what happened yesterday. But for some of us, you come from the great land of Tennessee. The Tennessee Titans won yesterday. We're one step closer to the Super Bowl. So I know you, some of you Colts fans, you're you're just you're disgusted by this truth, but uh, it's a good day for us from Tennessee. So uh, really exciting uh, happened yesterday for some of you who are from Tennessee and, and, and like the Titans. Another thing, I just want to make this moment made known because he doesn't want to be made known, but yet he's wearing an orange T-shirt. Is that Josh? Uh, Josh Stratt has lost a bet. That's why he's wearing this shirt. Uh, he's a big Kentucky fan, and they lost to my beloved University of Tennessee Vols, uh, fair and square. And uh, he is now wearing uh, the, the proof of his, his humiliation, is this orange t-shirt. And uh, it actually has a really good story to it, uh, a good heart, uh, tender story uh, that has nothing to do with Tennessee football or Kentucky football. And so you can ask Josh or someone else who may have heard this story about why that t-shirt looks like a child through it. Because there's a story behind it. So I uh, just wanted to make that, uh, do that real quick. Uh, so Luke chapter 11, and we are in uh, verse 24. Um, kind of continuing a, a, a <coughs> teaching that Jesus started um, in uh, verse, four, uh, verse 14. So Luke chapter 11, starting in verse 24. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, he finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last day of that person is worse than the first. As Jesus said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. But Jesus said, Blessed, rather, are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we praise you, Lord, that even in difficult texts like this one, Lord, you are helping us to understand a, a very important Lord, I pray that you would teach us that this, 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 this afternoon, Lord. That you would teach us through your word. That you would encourage us, but also challenge us, Lord. If we are thinking contrary to what your word says, 
that you would correct us, that we would be open to that correction, Lord, wanting to live our life by the teachings of Christ. Lord, we pray for those who are not with us because they are still home from the holidays and still making their way back to Evansville. We pray for them. They spend one last day with their families before starting classes tomorrow. Pray for others who are sick, who aren't feeling well. We pray, Lord, that you would restore them, that you would restore their health, and Lord, bring them back. And pray that, Lord, you would sustain them this week as they go back to work or um, whatever they have to, uh, to do this week, Lord. Lord, we want to just pray, Lord, that you would, we pray for our brothers and sisters in Nepal. Lord, we thank you, Lord, for what you're doing there. Uh, Rajendra sent me a text this week, and you know, because you saved them. They had two people that were saved. Those who were Hindus, who, who believed in these, these gods that had no eyes and no mouth to speak and no hearts to understand, but they have now trusted in the invisible knowing God. We praise you, Lord, for that. Lord, we pray for our brothers and sisters there. We pray, Lord, that you would continue to save those who are lost. And Lord, we pray, Lord, that it would be an encouragement to us who are frustrated, Lord, because we're not seeing as much fruit. Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would sustain us, you would give us perseverance, that we would continue to proclaim your truth, knowing, Lord, that you're a God that saves. Lord, we pray that you would encourage us with that truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Even though it's January the 12th and not the first Sunday after New Year's, I thought it would be appropriate to, to talk about resolutions. I mean, people, it's at the time of year where people make resolutions. Uh, Pastor didn't preach at the nursing home about this, talking about Joshua chapter 1, about resolutions. I, I read this week that, I don't know if you know this, but like only 8% of people who make resolutions actually accomplish their resolutions. 8%. It's a pretty low number. Doesn't really give people, it shouldn't give people a lot of encouragement to make resolutions since most people fail. But yet every year, people make resolutions. And I wanted to, I wrote down a few examples of some resolutions that people make. This was on like, you know, these website lists of like top 10 resolutions that people make in a given year. One is read more books, right? Uh, some people, they just feel like they don't read enough books, they watch too much TV, right? And like, man, I've watched like a lot of television this year, right? I accomplished the, the I accomplished by binging these TV series during the year. But, and they're like, I just feel like I watch too much TV, and so therefore I want to read more books. Maybe you've made that resolution this year. You want to read more books. Another one is eating healthier, right? People say they want to lose weight. They want to eat healthier. They feel like they, they go out to eat too much, or they, they eat just kind of burgers and fries and just not enough good, healthy food. Drink more water. People want to drink more water. I feel like they drink too much sodas or drink too much coffee or too much sweet tea. I know from the South, we drink sweet tea. We don't drink unsweet tea. So teas, or they want to drink more water. They want, to drink, they want to drink things that are more healthy to them. They want to volunteer more. They want to volunteer at uh, either uh, in like city ministries or city nonprofits, or they want to volunteer more at church or wherever. They want to volunteer more. They want to give their time to those in need. They want to... Uh, they want to go to bed earlier. They, they want to, instead of going to bed at 1 o'clock or 2 o'clock in the morning, they want to go to bed at a decent hour, like 10 or 11 o'clock. They want to get up earlier. They want to be more productive. They want to start the day being more productive than just kind of struggling with finding rest. Uh, they want to spend less time on their phones. Uh, this is always one for me. Spending less time on your phone. If you have an iPhone, it will tell you how much time you spend on your phone that week, right? Everyone would say, you spent 30 hours this week on your phone, or whatever it says. Uh, and you just want to spend less time with, on your phone, you want to spend more time with people, 
Um, people have that resolution. They want to become more tidy, right? They want, to, they want their house to be a little more tidy, their space to be a little more tidy and less messy. They want to get out of debt. Maybe they're in massive credit card debt or uh, student loans. And they want to make this, a, this kind of commitment that year and start paying off debt. These are some common resolutions. You may have some of these resolutions. You may have family members or friends who have these similar resolutions. And you're kind of in the, behind your, kind of like, when someone says they have this resolution, they want to eat healthy, you're kind of like, yeah, right. Like, that's not going to happen. <laughs> knowing the person, right? You're knowing this particular person who drinks Mountain Dews all the time. You're like, you want to drink more water? You hate water. You're never going to drink water, right? So, like, people have these resolutions, and, and they typically will get through maybe the month of January, and it'll start to fade. Um, I was interested, I don't know if you know the history of resolutions, New Year's resolutions. They actually have a pretty extensive history. It started about 4,000 years ago with the Babylonian people. You know the Babylonian Empire and King Nebuchadnezzar from the Bible? But the Babylonian Empire was known to make yearly resolutions. And basically, their beginning of their new year was mid-March, because that's when they would plant new crops. And uh, they would promise to their gods that they would pay their debts and return items borrowed, like farm equipment. So that those resolutions that they would make to their gods, that, hey, this, this year I'm going to pay off my debts, and I'm going to return that borrowed whatever to my neighbor or to my friend that I have had for 20 years and haven't given back. They would make these promises to their gods. And by, by fulfilling those resolutions to their gods, the gods would bestow favor on them for the coming year. If you didn't follow your resolutions... You would fall out of God, the God's favor. So you were pretty motivated to do this. The Egyptians had a similar uh, tradition with their gods to make resolutions. The Romans also would have resolutions in the beginning of the year. They would ask Janus, uh, the two-headed god, who, who kind of had two heads looking forward and backwards in the time. And they, the people would make these promises of good conduct for the coming year. And if they, they fulfill these promises, that the gods would give them favor. Americans today, we don't really believe in all these different idols and gods, but kind of the major religion in America is kind of self-religion, right? Your own self. So you, what you do, you're making promises to yourself, your God, and that you're going to have self-improvement. You're going to improve yourself. And that by improving yourself, you're almost going to receive a blessing or favor, right? You're almost convincing yourself that if you do these things, if you make these self-improvements, if you're tidier, if you're healthier, if you exercise more, that somehow you're going to be a better you. You're going to be a better God. You're going to improve your state. The emphasis of resolutions in the new year is an attempt to fix yourself, to improve what is lacking about yourself. You have fallen short of some perceived standard by which to live, and so we commit to change, to turn over a new leaf. This motivation is to get our lives straight, right? It's rooted in our childhood. Parents are concerned with the behavior of their children. Well-behaved children get rewarded for doing things that are good, and are, when they are misbehaved, it brings judgment. When children are raised right by their parents, later in their youth and adulthood, they know the standard by which to live. So religiously, they know the expectation is to attend a church to be right with God. So people will make these resolutions in the new year. I'm going to start going back to church. I've been out of the church for so long. I need to be right with God. 
Because that's how they were raised. They perceived that being good or having good conduct is to be right with God. And that meant going to church. So if you're falling away from how you were raised, you make a resolution to get right with God. Go Get back into church. Stop drinking alcohol. Stop going to bars with your friends. Go to church. Get back into church. Get right with God. Clean yourself up. Be a better mom or dad. Work harder. Do better. The belief is if I have the proper behavior or habits, then I will achieve transformation. I become a better person, a better you. Sadly, this belief is not only a secular viewpoint passed down by Oprah or whomever you people watch or read. The church is filled with moral improvement. Sermons and Bible study lessons reduced to a guide for human behavior. And the application point is clean yourself, come to church, be nice to your neighbor, and God's favor will come to you. Just act like a good Christian, boy or girl, and you will be loved by God. He will bless you. And this, you don't have to be a progressive liberal Democrat who watches MSNBC to believe this. You can be a conservative who watches Fox News and almost fall for the same habit. Either it's social ethics or personal ethics. Liberals and progressives and Democrats typically tend to focus on social ethics, right? How your actions impact the world or impact a group of people, where conservatives tend to be, or Republicans tend to be more concerned with personal ethics, your own actions, cleaning yourself up, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. Yet both are damning. Both are damning. Galatians 2.16, Paul says, we know that a person is not justified, declared righteous, or good by works of the law, but through faith in Christ, through trusting in Christ. In order to be good or justified by faith in Christ, and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. No one will be declared good or righteous. Referring back to the passage from last week in Luke 11, 14 through 23, the strong man, Satan, his kingdom, is not driven away by anything. Resolutions, good deeds, moralism, what does the passage say? It's only driven away by the stronger man. The stronger man is Christ. So the kind of big idea, it's on the screen, self-reformation has no power to set you right with God, only trust in Christ. The self-reformations do not, resolutions about Fixing yourself will not set you right with God. Only trusting in Christ. So the first point is, is self-reformation is void of a Savior. I didn't mention this before, but the title, and hopefully this doesn't uh, uh, offend anyone, but um, it's a damning delusion, a damning delusion. Self-reformation is void of a Savior. This is verses 24 through 26. So Jesus is continuing to talk about kind of the demonic and the supernatural world. And he, he this passage has always been a difficult passage. That's why we didn't include it with last week's sermon, because it's a difficult passage. There's some interesting and odd words and terms that Jesus has used. And it's just kind of like, what is he talking about? And so kind of isolating it and bringing it with the other, other last two verses in 27 and 28 helps to understand this passage a little bit. helps us understand what Jesus is talking about. He's still talking to this crowd. 
And he is, you know, in the passage before, he singled out the Pharisees and the religious leaders because they called Jesus basically an agent of Satan. That he does his work by the power of Beelzebub, or by the power of Satan. He's also talking to those who are asking Jesus to perform a sign for them. Right? They want to see him do something to prove his power. And Jesus basically says, I'm the stronger man who kicks out Satan and his, his kingdom. And by the fingers of God, the power of God is how I do this. So he continues to talk. And he says, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, the unclean spirit here is talking about a demon, um, an evil spirit, similar to what the man had in the story before, this man who was possessed by a demon and was mute. The other gospel says that he couldn't hear because of the demon, and Jesus cast the demon out, cast out the unclean spirit. So he continues to talk about these unclean spirits. He says, when an unclean spirit has gone out of a person through exorcism, he passes through waterless place. Seeking rest. What does that mean? Basically, the demon is, is cast out of the person, and a demon cannot operate like as some type of, of something that's not doesn't have a host. And so it needs a host, a person or an animal, to then possess. So the, when the demon is cast out, the unclean spirit is cast out, it passes through a deserted place. It basically it's it's aimlessly wandering for a new person to dwell in, and it cannot find that person to dwell in. It's finding a, a, trying to find a host that's not someone who's faithful to God, someone who is void of God, his heart is void of God, and he's looking for a soul, he's looking for a person to possess. That a demon would possess a person. That's how they do their work. That's how they're able to operate. That's how they're able to accomplish what Satan wants them to accomplish, is by being in a person. It doesn't accomplish its work by simply roaming aimlessly. And that's why Jesus uses this term of the waterless place, the desert, a barren land, unable to find someone new to terrorize. So it says, I will return to my house from where I came. He will return to the, the, uh, the place that he was taken out of. Jesus has a deep understanding of the thoughts and actions of Satan and his demons. Like, Jesus is not some kind of like, he's not a novice when it comes to understanding the supernatural world. Why? Because he's the creator of the supernatural world. He has a very deep understanding of the actions of Satan and the enemies of God. Knowing that angels, I mean, demons were created as angels who fell from their position. Uh, the book of Jude helps us here. Jude chapter, well, not chapter, but verse 6. It's only one chapter. Jude, verse 6. It's a helpful passage here, talking about demons. Jude chapter 6. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he was kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So these angels did not stay within their proper place. They fell with Satan and are now enemies of God. They hate God. And they hate the people of God. And they hate God's creation. When they indwell a person, they're not indwelling them to help them or to aid them in any way. They're there to terrorize. If you think this is crazy, people of the West, which includes America, believe they're somewhat above intellectually the beliefs of angels and demons and spirits, right? If you're ever in a conversation with someone and you spit out Satan and demons and angels, people are going to probably think you're crazy, right? 
that's like common conversation with most people. We kind of think in the West, well, yeah, 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 God is real, but Satan and demons and angels and stuff, that just seems a little bit far-fetched. <coughs> so when we come to these passages in scriptures, we kind of like gaze over them, right? We move on to something more substantial, more tangible, something more concrete, something more earthy, nothing less supernatural. But little do we know that Satan rules this world. Because humanity has aligned itself to him through their sinful rebellion against God. Satan is their master. One of his main tactics is subtleness. Subtly twisting truth. So Satan's not going to come out one day, come out of your closet and say, Hello, I'm Satan. Look at my horns. Look at, my, look at myself. I know it'll look terrifying and be afraid of me. That's not how he works. Because that, be, that would be the worst thing to do. His tactics are subtle. Basically, his tactics is to say, I don't exist, and my, and my demons don't exist either. That is a way of twisting the truth. Be closed to the supernatural. That is naturalism. A world closed to the spiritual world. No hope of God aids through his spirit. So meaning this idea that if we live in a world without any supernatural world, without any, without any spiritual world, then there is no Holy Spirit. There is no aid from God if there is no spiritual world. And so Satan's tactic is to make us ignorant towards the enemy of God and his church. Satan hates God. Martin Luther said that, he got, that Satan hates his word more than any other thing. Basically, Satan hates God's word more than any other thing. He hates God's word. He hates what God's word does. He does not want me or our church preaching the word of God. So what he does is that he twists the truth. He's a great salesman. He's convinced many in our society that all you need to do to get right with God is self-reformation. That is not a biblical path or way to God. Self-reformation. But Satan twists that and says, that's what God wants you to do. He wants you to make yourself right, clean yourself up, pull yourself up from your bootstraps, and that's how you become right with God. That's him twisting the truth. He has convinced many in our society that all you need to do is be right with God is self-reformation. You'll be truly happy only if you get a little religion. Just a little. That's surprising, isn't it? You're like, well, no, that, that seems like what God would. He would want us to be a little religious. No, 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 no. That's Satan kind of twisting the truth. Get a little religion. Get a little bit of church. You convince yourself through self-reformation that you're good with God. Get back into church. Make yourself feel spiritual. Maybe one of those Jesus devotion books that tell you to find yourself, to be happy with yourself, to work, to be the best you. You just get a little of that, and that will make you good with God. It's twisting the truth. Yet all you're doing is cleaning and sweeping your life and putting it in order, and the efforts foster the damning delusion. I think I'm good. I think I'm right with God. This individual in this story... We don't get a lot of details about them, right? This is mostly a parable, probably. We don't know if it's a particular individual. It's maybe a, kind of a parable that Jesus is teaching. And he, and he has this character. We don't get a lot of descriptions about the character, but let's kind of fill in some characteristics of this person. The individual in the story, it's told by Christ, was more likely a religious person. Maybe he was raised right from his childhood. A good citizen, socially caring to people in the community, attends protests against social injustice, gives money to the NPR, NPR, occasionally does nice acts for their neighbor, volunteers their time to help others, 
believes in equality for all races, genders, and sexualities. If the local ruler were to give out a community reward, he or she would be nominated. Yet their heart was a spiritual vacuum, empty of love, empty of devotion to God. Their self-reformation project, their billboard of moralism, has only set the stage for more oppression and more lies to come. Continue reading this story. What happens? The, de the demon is like, well, I'll just go back to my former place. And what does he find the place? He finds it swept, clean, and put to order, but void of God. Void of God. The unspeaking spirit brings some friends along with him. Seven other spirits more evil than itself. The last state of that man became worse than the first. What did he do to get to this place? Moralism. Self-reformation, a little bit of religion, a little bit of good deeds, soul-numbing deception, false godliness. Romans 1.28, and since they did not see first to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. When we read this text, we think of people who do horrific things, horrific things. When you place your faith in your self-reformation project, you're also failing to acknowledge God, and therefore he's giving you up. And you may be sitting in a church thinking you're right with God because your own efforts, but you're only sweeping and cleaning your life, and God has given you up to a life of moralism that is void of God's grace and love. Isn't that frightening? To think you've done everything right, to be right with God, and all you've done is basically didn't acknowledge God and gave you, God gave you up to a life of moralism void of any grace. Moralism cannot break down the hostility between you and God. Your sin is not erased by resolutions and self-reformation. Checking every social and personal ethic box is not adequate. I'm going to say, I know a lot of us in this room are millennials, or Generation Zs. And we think that we have a sense of social purity when we're on the right side of an issue. As if like being a saint in today's world is to be a protester. That if you just protest the injustices that you perceive or you join in the masses of some social injustice, that you're a saint. And that's how you achieve sainthood. That you gain approval for stances that you take. Just in, I'll just list a few. Me Too, Black Lives Matter, Equal Rights for All, Global Warming, Never Trump, etc., etc., pro-life. I mean, all these different the groups to join or to, to, um, to uh, activate, acti uh, uh, basically protest with. We've got to think that we achieve something, that we achieve moral perfection, or we achieve some type of holiness or righteousness. Yet none of these causes will redeem you. The false gospel of wokeness. Just because you're woke about something, just because you're woke about some injustice, does not make you right with God. And our generation, if you're millennial or generation, we always fail for this, don't we? We just clean up ourselves and we portray to the world how great we are, that somehow that will make us right with God, and it does not make you right with God. Christ is not acknowledged. Damnation is still on you. The second point is, is blessed are those who hunger and thirst for God's word, and they shall love God's, they shall have God's grace. 
Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for God's word, and they shall have God's grace. These are the last two verses, 27 and 28. So basically, in this crowd, this woman, a certain woman, raises her voice. And she yells out, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nurse. Basically, she's giving praise to Mary in this, this passage. And I think this is something interesting. In that world, which is not that much different than our world today, mothers receive a lot of value by what? The accomplishments of their kids. If their kids accomplish something great, if their kids are well-behaved, it must show that they have good mothers and good fathers. The value of a mother by the accomplishment of her son. I, my, my, I didn't play football. Uh, my, mom, my brother played football. And my mom would go to every home game, or every game, wearing her big old button, right, on her shirt uh, with my brother's, I don't know if it was a picture of my brother and his, like, number or just his number, I can't remember. But, I mean, she was very proud. I mean, she should be proud, right? I mean, like, your son's playing the sport. And he was, my brother's really, my brother was really fast. My grandfather could, uh, very, a lot faster than I was. And uh, so he played running back and he played quarterback. And he was, my brother was fairly good at football. And my mom was very proud that my, my that her son, my brother, Andrew, was accomplished in the sport. There's nothing wrong with that. I'm not calling my mom out for her celebration of my my uh, my brother's accomplishment. But typically, what happens is is that a mother is valued by the accomplishment of her son or her daughter. Yet Jesus continues to teach them the path of favor with God. It's not about your kids' accomplishments that gives you value. But what does Jesus say? He says. Blessed, the happy ones, the fortunate ones, the favored ones. Rather, or on the contrary, are the ones who, what? Trust in his word. And keep his word. My, basically, Jesus is saying, being my mother is not the proof of blessing from God. Your favor from God is not based on your moralism. Mothers and dads, the proof of God's love for you is not based on the behavior of your kids, their success in life, the amount of money you bring home if you're a dad or a mom. That does not bring you value. It does not prove God's love for you or his favor on you. Students, the proof of God's love and grace in your life is not based on the amount of internships you get or the dean lists you achieve or the faculty recommendations you obtain or job offers you receive after graduation. You always fail for this deception. I fell for it too when I was a student. You think that God loves you based off all these things that your peers are getting. None of these provide any evidence of God's grace in your life. Jesus said, blessed are the ones who hear the word of God and keep it. When you crave God and his word, when you have trusted in Christ, you reconcile, you've been reconciled to God and his spirit is poured into your life, the stronger one, Jesus Christ, has pushed out the tyranny of Satan in your life, and you're no longer a slave to sin and Satan. You're free in Christ. Blessed is the one who's free in Christ. And all of God's grace has been poured into you, and you've been filled with his love and peace and satisfaction. You've entered into God's rest. All is well. Not all is well when your life is cleaned up and your life looks perfect when you're drinking better, more water, when you're healthier, when your house looks more orderly, when you're working harder, when you're accomplishing more rewards, when the world tells you how great you are, that does not mean all is well. 
Because you can be far away from God and completely void of God in your life. And not acknowledging his presence in your life. And he is now giving you over to a life of moralism. A life void of his grace. Moralism doesn't work. It doesn't work. It just all it, all, it, all, it, all it does, it makes you more alienated from God. Ephesians 2, 11 through 12, you're separated from Christ, you're strangers to God and His grace. There is no hope for you without Christ. Romans 5, 11 and Colossians 1, 21, you're enemies of God. You are the villains in the story. The story does not say that humanity is the, is the princesses and the ones who God comes and rescues. You're the villain in the story. You are the villain. We are the enemies of God, and Christ saves us and redeems us. Humanity is unable to be good and righteous. We are unable to be moral enough to be reconciled to God. Fellowship will not be casually reinstated just because you just got back into church. How's your life going? Well, I'm back in church. Well, that's great. Are you right with God? Well, it doesn't matter. All that means is I'm right with God because I'm back in the church. It's not so casually reinstated. It's through the blood of Jesus Christ that you are reconciled to God. This is what God thinks about you getting back into church. Well, Isaiah 64, 6. We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like polluted garments. That's what he thinks about you getting back into church. That's what he thinks about your moralism or your self-reformation project. Your moralism is ineffective. Your sin remains. Sin is the barrier. Moralism, good deeds, won't, won't remove the barrier. The cross of Christ removes the barrier. If you don't believe in Christ, there's still a barrier. You're still, you're still hostile to God. You're still a villain in the story. You're still an enemy of God. And your reformation projects and your moralisms will not accomplish any of the issues in your life. And you will still be a barrier between you and God. Christ has dealt with the problem. Romans 5.8, while we were still sinners, not perfect people, who have done, who have dealt with all their problems, but sinners, enemies of God, troubled people, lazy people, people who have been out of church a while, people who yell at their kids, people who, whose, whose houses are messy, people who are, living, who, who are eating unhealthy, all the different ways that we want to describe this, we are sinners. And Christ has died for us. He did not die for people who changed their attitudes and changed their lives to be right with God. Christ died for sinners. Your changed attitude towards God and his church will not dissolve the hostility. Only Christ on the cross. Only trusting in the cross of Christ will establish fellowship between you and God. Only trusting Christ will fill you with the grace of God. Only through Christ will you be filled with the graces of God. And that is what you lack. Without, you lack, not that you need some reformation project, not that you, you lack uh, 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 busyness or you lack a certain understanding of order or management of your life. What you lack is God's grace, and the only way you get it is through Christ. Uh, some of y'all, um, I posted this video. You, sometimes they say, like, don't, don't look at Facebook as a waste of time. Sometimes it's not a waste of time. Sometimes you get something that's kind of good that you never would have known unless you kind of did the scrolling through the Facebook thing. Usually Saturday mornings, uh, especially when I have in-laws in town or my parents are in town, and I don't have to, like, I mean, at least I don't have to get up really quickly and go get kids. We can kind of, like, lay in bed. And so a lot of times I'll get on Facebook and kind of scroll for a little bit. And I caught a video, and some of y'all watched this. It was, I didn't know anything about this video. I had, like, six million 
used on YouTube. But it was a, a, a valedictorian from a, a college called, well, not a college, but a, a, like a high school called King's Academy. And he was given his valedictorian speech. His name was Kyle Martin. It's a great speech. You should go, it's like eight minutes long. It's not very long. But he says a lot of great things in eight minutes. And he says basically that the year before he graduated from his school, that he was told that he, was, he could be the valedictorian. And so when he was told that, he immediately wanted it. He wanted this reward. He wanted this accomplishment. And so he worked really hard. He says that he sacrificed for it. He stressed for it. And he said when he received this award at some banquet, he said it felt really good. Like really, really good. Like he was so ecstatic, so pumped that he became valedictorian of school. But he said it lasted for like 15 seconds. So it felt good for 15 seconds. But then in the 16th second, he basically said, that's it. I don't feel good anymore. I feel empty. Like this, this all this, this thing that I stressed over and, and I worked hard for and I sacrificed for only gave me six, 15 seconds of pleasure. 15 seconds. He's like, why did that happen? Why did it fade away so fast? He says, working hard is good. But he, he said, by working so hard and stressing so hard and sacrificing so much, he, a, a, a relationships became were, were sacrificed. That he, he that at the expense of relationships that he accomplished this. A lack of attending to relationships. And he even says, like, what is your end all be all? What are you willing to sacrifice relationships for? And he, and he did a great job of saying, as high school kids and going to college, we don't think about the, the impact of our decisions. But he said, put it in a different way. What if you focus only on your career or only on money or only on being famous? Who's going to be sacrificed for this be-all, end-all goal of yours? And he says it's not important for the sake of eternity. Christ is your first relationship that matters. He says care for that relationship above others. Have no regrets in the 16th seconds. You can work so hard. You can come to church every week. You can serve in so many different ways. You can be the all-star of the church, but be so far from God. Because that doesn't do anything. It will give you no pleasure past 15 seconds. The only thing that will last for eternity is the grace of God. And being filled with the grace of God. And I love what Kyle said. And I like that he, he's a believer, he's a brother, I'm not really sure where he is. But he said, he basically said, just do it. He said, why haven't you trusted in Christ? He said, just do it. Trust in Christ. Christ is the source of God's grace. Stop falling into moralism and resolutions that will fail you. But trust Christ. Just do it. Just trust in Christ. Stop trying to work hard. Not try, stop trying to clean up your life. If you're a student, have goals. Awesome to have goals. But not at the expense of relationships. Not at the expense of be, spending time with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Same with you dads and moms who work a lot. Like, yeah, you're working hard. You're making money for your family. But not at the expense of relationships with your family. But also the expense of your relationship with your people in the church. Like, don't do it. It's not worth it. There's no value past the 15 seconds. Trust in Christ. Live by his word. Don't just say you're going to do it. Just do it. If you need help, ask us. That's what pastors do. We help. We help disciple. We help serve. We help shepherd. We do not want any of you to fall into moralism. We don't want any of you to work, fall into this damning delusion 
that you have to work and clean up your life to be right with God because that will, that will lead you to hell and damnation and a judgment and not being right with God. Let's pray. So Lord, I thank you so much for your word. And I know it's challenging, Lord, especially passages like this one, Lord. We think so often that all I have to do is just get, all, get my life in order. Clean up my house. Be more productive. Stop procrastinating, eating healthier, working out more. But all of those things do not make us right with you. They are not the ways to receive your grace, to be filled with your grace. This passage says that when we try to sweep and clean up our life and put our order, life in order, it just leads to more oppression by the enemies of God, by the enemies of you, Lord. So help any of us who fall into this trap to not fall into this trap. If we know people that have already made it known to us, I just need to get back in the church. I just need to get back in the church. I just need to get back in the church. Thinking that getting back in the church and sitting in a pew is somehow going to make them right with you. But it's only through Christ. It's only trusting in Christ. It is not while we were clean people and while we were holy and pure people you died for us. You died for us while we were sinners. And we'll, but you and help us not to encourage people into moralism, to encourage people into repentance and faith in Christ. Lord, we praise you. We love you. We pray, Lord, that you would help us not to be legalists, but to be followers of your word and to trust in your word and to keep it. Lord, we love you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to take up the Lord's Supper. If I can get didn't, and uh, Ian, why don't you come help as well? And uh, the way that we do um, 